We do exalt him this morning, and that song, Chaotic Love, is really an invitation to a deeper relationship. And saying, God, I want a deeper relationship with you, even if that means that you need to convict me of some things, or correct me of some things, or challenge me some things. Father, do whatever it takes to deepen my relationship with you. As we continue in Titus, we're going to find that Paul is going to give some real clear leadership strategies on how we can invite God to correct us, how we can invite God to rebuke us, but even more so how we can as leaders take those same ways that God parents us or leads us and use those same strategies to lead, rebuke, admonish, and encourage other people as well. Because if you're a parent, you know that interacting with your kids at whatever age they are, and as they get older, the more challenging it becomes to figure out how do you put that rebuking and that that admonishing and that correcting in place. If you've been to a family reunion, you can see dysfunction all over the place, some in yourself and some in others. It's the triangles, it's the gossip. How do we interact with that? How do we protect ourselves from some of the brokenness that's there? Some of the strategies that Paul is going to give Titus in dealing with the challenges in Crete are going to be so applicable to any relationship in our life as we learn how these work. Because often it's our personalities color our view of conflict. So some of us, we go, oh, I love to rebuke people. I'm so good at it. You say, well, how do the people you rebuke feel about it, right? And we salivate over the idea of telling people how it is. And yet we're not real effective with it. Others of us, we've sort of decided it's not Christian to rebuke. That's mean-spirited. That's inappropriate. And we're more conflict-averse, and so we assume that conflict or rebuking or being harsh ever is inappropriate. And Paul gives such practical advice on how we can bring these tools to bear, despite our background, despite what we grew up with, despite our personality. There are really tools God gives us in the Bible that can play out in our relationships as well. So before we get to Titus, I want to give a 30,000-foot view of that from, uh, from Timothy, which is another pastoral epistle. Here in Timothy, Paul lays out exactly what Scripture does or how God wants to instruct us. He says, all of Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. Literally means is God breathed. And it's profitable. So the Bible is profitable. There's some things it does. It's, it's profitable. It functions in a certain way. And there's four tools by which it functions. Doctrine. We'll talk about that in a moment. Reproof. Correction. And instruction. Four tools that can grow us. And when you use those four tools as a leader, use those four tools as a parent, allow God to use those four tools on you, here's what you should expect. That you would become complete, literally mature, that you would grow as these tools are used in and around your life, and you would be equipped for every good work. So if you want to know how to grow spiritually and mature, and you want to be equipped for life, you have to let all four of these tools come to bear in your life and the lives of those you lead. So here's what those tools mean. Doctrine is when you teach a right belief. Contrast that with reproof, you correct a wrong belief. So let's pause for a moment, because when you hear doctrine, most people are like, hmm, doctrine, that stuffy, boring thing that I guess theologians talk about. Doctrine is anything true about yourself, about the world, or about others. Parents, leaders are constantly teaching doctrine. What's the right belief? What's the wrong belief? Your kids or your grandkids come up to you and say, life's not fair! And you say, 
Life's not supposed to be fair. What did you do? You just taught doctrine. You just reproved a wrong belief. Don't think life's going to treat you fair. And you actually instructed them with doctrine, a right belief. Prepare. It's going to be tough out there. Your teenager breaks up with her boyfriend or girlfriend. And when you approach them, they're saying, life's not worth living. They're depressed. I can't go on. Nobody likes me anymore. And what do you do? They've got a belief. And you try and come against that belief. You try and actually reprove it. No, no, no. Life is worth living. There is hope. Life is bigger than that guy or that girl. And then you try and give them some doctrine. You matter. This too will pass. You will get through this. We're in this together. You know what that is? That's teaching doctrine. You're helping grow your kids, grow your employees. When you teach them certain behaviors as well. Correction is not about beliefs, it's about behavior. You're correcting a wrong behavior versus instruction is teaching a right behavior. So same thing, you come and you say, hey, listen, that's not how we handle things here in our department. Listen, we don't talk about people behind their back. Let me get him in the room and let's have a conversation, the three of us, because we don't talk behind each other's back here. You're correcting wrong behavior and you're giving a right one. And I think sometimes as parents and as leaders, it's so easy just to say, that's not right. Instead of taking the time to use these tools to say, let me tell you why it wasn't right. And let me tell you what right might look like. About six months ago, my son, Javen, he's a junior, a finishing junior, going to start senior next year. And I'd asked him to do a certain amount of things before I got home that day, and he didn't. And so I have uh, control of his computer from my phone, so I turned his computer off, and he was not happy. <laughs> so he sent me a, an email, or text rather, explaining why he thought that the punishment didn't fit the crime and that the deadlines I said he had met and the small portion he didn't um, didn't seem to correlate with the consequences I gave him. So I got the email, I read it. I went, oh, this is very well articulated. Okay, so I called him back up. I said, hey, first of all, hey, thanks for contacting me. Instead of just stewing and how mad you were. So good news you know, when you have a problem, you come talk to me. Two, I thought you explained why you felt like I was unfair here very well and here very well. And I think maybe I was a little too harsh on this area. But the deadline was the deadline, and I expected you to hit the deadline. Oh, well, okay, I, I didn't hit that part. I said, so I want to affirm that I'm always okay with you appealing. I'm always okay with you pushing back, but you need to do it in a respectful way. Next time, though, you need to call me, not text me. Now, one more coaching. When referring to my parenting style, you might want to avoid the phrase Nazi-like in your text. Uh, Nazi-like probably, probably didn't make me real open to your feedback. Now, I can work past that, but just to admonish you uh, later. And so, specifics. This was good, this was bad. Rather than emotionally reacting, you can't talk to me like this. Well, what did that mean? What does it mean next time? This is how we grow people. It's how we grow our kids, we grow our employees, we grow ourselves. So we teach uh, uh, wrong behaviors and right behaviors. And so that, one, we grow. We grow through these tools. And two, we get equipped for life. And if we don't equip people in our life for life, then what happens is the things we don't address early on end up following them through marriages and through life. And that's why Paul gets so practical here in saying that leaders need to know how to gag them and tag them. Leaders in any area of life need to know how to gag them and tag them. There are certain behaviors that need to be gagged, that need to not be tolerated. You need to come strongly against them. They need to be gagged, and there are certain behaviors that need to be tagged. Now, that's inappropriate. That's wrong. We need to come against that. And if you can learn as a leader to gag them and tag them, you're going to learn how to set very healthy boundaries that help grow people for their good. First, gag them. Two aspects of that. Paul addressing Titus as he's in a very challenging culture there in Crete. 
And he says, for there are many who are insubordinate. Let me tell you what you're dealing with here. You've got a culture of insubordination. Not only that, idle talkers and deceivers. And if you don't gag them, if you don't say, no, that's, we don't do that here in the church. That's not appropriate for a follower of God. If you do not gag that technique, put boundaries in place to stop this kind of behavior. Deception, insubordination, and idle talking. Especially coming from those of the circumcision. It's interesting he notes that because in Timothy, he tells Timothy in Ephesus has the same problem. A community or culture that celebrates insubordination, celebrates gossip and idle talking, and celebrates deception. So that's happening in Timothy in Ephesus, but here it's happening in Crete among specifically a religious group. So there's sort of a religious flavor to this. It's okay to lie as long as you you say God told you to do it. It's okay to be insubordinate because you know God told you what to do. It doesn't matter what the elders or the pastors of the church say. I know better because God talked directly to me. There's a particular flavor of this insubordination that's showing up amongst the circumcision or this religious group here in Crete. And look what he says. Their mouths must be stopped. Strong language. You've got to gag that kind of behavior. As a leader, if you do not stop insubordination, that will just grow and it will create mutiny. It will create triangles. It will create a culture that nobody wants to work in. And haven't you worked in places like that? Where gossip ran amok? Where one person on the team had a level of insubordination that it was always about their way and their credit? And as a leader, unfortunately, you're doing the parenting their parents never did. Right? And because somebody didn't love them enough to say, stop, that is inappropriate, they learned that they could run their own life, even though the consequences of relationships and marriages and kids. And so as a leader, your job is to stop, set boundaries in place. They must be stopped, he says. Why? Why are the stakes so high? Because if you don't stop insubordination or idle talking or gossip or a a culture of lying or deception... They will subvert. The poison of that will affect the whole household. Relationships and marriages will be affected. Families will be affected. Departments will be affected. Companies will be affected. So the reason as a leader we need to come strong against these particular things is because when you set a strong boundary, you're not only telling what is wrong, but you're also showing how wrong that wrong is. So for example... Back to a child metaphor, you knock, a child knocks a, a, a drink off the table. You're grounded for a month! No, that would be inappropriate. The, the consequence doesn't fit the crime. Instead, you say, hey, try and be more careful next time. Now, the next time they knock it off, you might say, listen, you're not being careful, and you might add a consequence to it. But the consequence is saying how bad it is, versus, hey, you came home, you lied to me, I caught you lying, you're going to lose your phone for a week. Or here's the consequences of what happened. If you don't change your, your behavior in the next 30 days and related to how you're talking with people on the back, we're going to have to terminate you. Boundaries teach what is wrong, but also the consequence you put with that boundary teaches just how wrong that wrong was. And Paul says, this stuff must be stopped. They are teaching things which are not, and they're also motivated for dishonest gain. So what they're doing is wrong, and their motivation is wrong, and we've got to stop it. Remember, a guy in our church called me about six months ago, and he said, listen, we've got an issue with our board, and we've got a person who keeps coming to our board who just is very subversive. They say that you know, God told them to come, and then they just talk in very inappropriate ways. Do you have any advice? 
I said, well, you know, I wrote a book called Unnecessary, sorry, Necessary Endings. It describes three different types of people in the book of Proverbs. The, the fool, the wise, and the evil. And that when you have a wise person, you rebuke a wise person and they get wiser still. When you have a foolish person, foolish people do not take wisdom. They only understand consequences and boundaries. So it says, do not rebuke a fool according to his folly. And then as the evil person, the Bible says, protect yourself from the evil person. I think you have here a well-meaning foolish person. So I think what you do is say, hey, listen, we'd love to hear your opinion, but just know when you come in, you're going to get a certain amount of time. You can't talk about people who aren't in the room. We're going to affirm people. We're going to listen. We really want to hear your feedback. But at the same time, we want you to hear our, our feedback or, or uh, explanation for what you're bringing up. So set the ground rules of what is appropriate behavior when somebody's voicing a complaint. So oh, that's very helpful. I remember my dad and I started an indoor soccer league um, back when I was in high school. So I trained all the referees, and it's now you know, a huge program in our, our hometown. And so people were always calling us because we trained all the referees. And this lady had just chewed me up one night um, for the call I made. I actually had to call the police on her. It was so bad, uh, her behavior. And I'm 17, calling the police on an adult. Uh, just, I went in the bathroom, and I sort of looked good, and I went in the bathroom and just cried. I just was so distraught over it. She called that day and uh, called my dad, who was the head of the referees, and is just yelling, yelling, yelling at me. <laughs> my dad's on the phone. He said, no, listen, I want to hear your complaint. Uh, I want to hear what you think happened, and I want to understand what's going on. But I want you to know that I, I don't tolerate swearing. So if you swear to me on the phone, just know I'm going to hang up on you. I can do whatever the effing blank I want. Click. She called back. Hey, oh, well, good to hear from you. We'd love to hear your complaints. We'd love to understand what's going on. Uh, we'd love to hear how we might drop the ball. But just know, I don't tolerate people swearing when they talk to me. I can do whatever. Click. By the fourth time, she called, and she didn't swear anymore. And I remember as a kid watching that and saying, you know what? He was open. He was honest. He was willing to dialogue, but he set really clear boundaries on what is destructive, what is destructive behaviors. So, gag them. There are certain behaviors we must stop, we must step into. The second part of gagging is not to stop it, it's to rebuke. Boundaries can be harsh, they can be sharp, but they're always motivated by love. Paul says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, let me tell you about the culture you're living in, Titus, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Wow. He says, even one of the poets that came from Crete Describe this island you're living on and ministering to and working in this way. They're always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And you think Paul would say, now that's a little exaggerated. Let's slow down here. Paul says, and you know, let's face it, that testimony is true. That's the culture you're living in. And because that's the culture everyone's grown up in, as they're coming to Christ, they're going to have all that bad habits, bad culture saturate into them. And so you as a leader got to rebuke and stop some things because they've never known any better. And you need to look at the word, rebuke them sharply. Sharply. Strong. No, that is, we do not do that. That is not appropriate. But look at the motivation. It's not I rebuke you because I'm annoyed by you. It's not I'm rebuking you because I'm angry you did it. It's motivated by love. I am rebuking you because I love you that you might be sound, which literally means healthy in your faith. See, I want the best for you. And when you gossip or when you lie 
or when you deceive or when you become lazy, you're hurting yourself. That is not healthy. And because I love you, I'm going to tell you that that is inappropriate. And I'm going to rebuke it sharply because I want you to grow. So you can be sharp, but it's motivated by love. And some of us are good at the love, so we think the sharp is inappropriate. Some of us are good at the sharp. It's like, I know you're saying you love me, but I don't see it. Jesus is the perfect blend of the the harsh boundary, the sharp boundary. That is wrong. I had to die for that. It was so serious. And incredible love. I want health in your life. I want to motivate you in this way. Now, it's interesting. This prophet of old, uh, most people think he came from the 6th century B.C., and he was writing in a culture that for years has celebrated the Greek-Roman gods. So there on Crete is a cave, and here in this cave there's a rumor told by the same guy who said that Zeus, mighty Zeus, had actually died and was buried in the cave. Now, the folks in that culture, they didn't think Zeus was dead. So they were very, very offended that they had turned the island of Crete into a tourist attraction for Zeus's death because they thought he was alive. So the rumor became all the Cretans lie. They'll even lie about Zeus dying so they can get tourists to come there. Well, later on, the, the rumor or the story about this cave in Crete changed to not be about Zeus's death, to be about his birth. So let me give you a little background if you don't remember the story of, uh, of Zeus. So Zeus's father was a titan named Kronos. And Kronos, this mighty titan, has a child with his wife Rhea. And when he has a child, a prophet comes to Kronos and says, One of your children will overthrow you. And because his father is so insecure, so power hungry, so about himself, he says, I've got to do something about one of these kids that's going to eventually overtake me. I don't know if it's Poseidon, I don't know if it's Demeter, I don't know if it's Zeus. So what do you do if you're an insecure dad who's worried about your power? You eat your children if you're a Crichton. So that's what he does. So he, he, he grabs his kids and he eats them. Unfortunately, or fortunately made for Zeus, Zeus's wife Rhea decides she wants to save him. So as a baby, she actually replaces him with a rock. So as Kronos goes to grab Demeter and grab Poseidon and grab Zeus, he doesn't realize in the big handful that Zeus is gone, there's a rock in his place. And Rhea hides Zeus in this cave, supposedly, so that he could later lead the rebellion, which he does. So he leads the rebellion, he gets all kinds of other weird creatures together, he gives the equivalent of Syrup of Epitach to his dad, who throws up his brothers and sisters, and they lead the rebellion against their father. Ah, if you grow up hearing that the gods are self-centered and insecure and they lie and they cheat and they manipulate, why would you not think that as an expression of your religion, you should lie and cheat and steal and manipulate and be insecure? Which is why Titus keeps coming back to our God is honest. And true. And he's not insecure. We have a heavenly father who loves us. He doesn't eat us. We have a heavenly father who wants to have connection with us. He's not threatened by us. And because of the unique culture in Titus, you need to realize that if you don't zoom in and zero in on rebuking these deceptive behaviors that have been modeled for centuries for this culture, they're going to keep repeating these habits that have been modeled for them. You've got to gag them. Gag these kind of behaviors through stopping them, through boundaries, and through rebuking them. And that rebuke can be sharp, 
but it always needs to be motivated by love. So leaders gag them and leaders tag them. What's the second thing about tag them? Two aspects of tag them. Number one, you need to realize that not only do you need to sort of, you know, gag those kind of behaviors, but you need to tag some things, label some things. That, that, that's, that's, let me call that what it is. And when you do that, Titus, you need to pay attention to what's going on around you. Often Christians can be some of the most naive people, and we shouldn't be. As followers of Christ, we should have a very healthy skepticism toward the human heart. We know our, our hearts are broken and are deceptive. And we know other people's hearts are deceptive. And we also know God works through all good things. But we should have a very healthy skepticism toward people's motivations. Because we know that Christ had to die for us because of it. And Paul says, I want you to pay attention. This is certain people who do not have a good motivation. And as a leader, you need to tag that for what it is. Do not give heed, we'll come back to that phrase in a second, to Jewish fables. There's a group of religious people who were adapting a little bit of the Zeus mythology with a little bit of Judaism and mixing it all together and saying, this is what God wants. Paul's preaching the gospel that you can be forgiven your past, your present, your future. That is not true. You really need to follow these certain rules and you're better than other people. Or Paul says you should treat your body like a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, really, Gnosticism is more true. God doesn't care what to do with your body. He only cares about your soul. So sleep with whoever you want to. This idea of saving yourself from marriage or being committed to God or being faithful or pursuing purity. Come on. So they were inventing these fables that produced fear or self-righteousness or diluted the power of the gospel. And Paul says, I want you to pay attention to who's talking to you. And I want you to not give heed to people who are spewing or espousing these kind of ideas. Or people who have commandments of men, they're adding stuff to the Bible, who are turning people away from the truth. So pay attention. Oh, that's not the gospel. That's self-righteous religion. That's moralism. You need to label and understand. You need to treat those things differently. And you need to recognize those things for what it is. And you need to not give heed to them. Now, really interesting, this phrase, not give heed, comes from a Greek word. And the Greek word is prosako which is a word picture of, imagine a giant ship coming into harbor. So here's the edge of the harbor here, and a ship is coming in. And as the ship is coming in, prosecho, my Greek is terrible in pronunciation, I'll say it again. Prosecho is a picture of a ship coming in, and it says, you're not even to let that ship touch the edge of the ground. Don't let it come to harbor. Don't let it get close. When you see triangles, when you see gossip, See it as poisonous cargo coming into your port. And you say, whoa, not here. No, 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 no. We're not going to tolerate that. Don't even come touch the ground of the harbor here. When you see the kind of self-righteous religion that condemns other people, creates a list of whatever it is you don't struggle with, and suddenly you're better than other people who do struggle with it, don't let that ship come to harbor. When you see behaviors in your department where people gossip or triangulate, you need to see that it's poison. Say, no, not here. That's not coming. We're going to address it. We're going to stop that. We're going to rebuke it. We're going to pay attention. No, 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 no. Don't contaminate our shores. That's the phrase he's using. Don't give heat. Don't let that touch the ground here. <clears throat> I remember a friend of mine in my first church, his name was Peter, and he had a very difficult childhood. Uh, he found out when he was a seventh or eighth grade, he looked up and he saw his father in a bus, and his dad was with. Not his mom, but a mom and a family. And at age seven, he found out that his father had two families on two different sides of Scotland and was a polygamist. And imagine the chaos that ensued from that. 
And as the family grew up and he was now an adult in his 40s, he realized that every time he would call his mom, one of his mom's mechanisms for feeling needed was that she would talk about the brothers behind their back. She would invent chaos that may or may not be there so that she could solve the chaos. So every time Peter called his mom, his mom would be talking about his brother or his sister and the bad things they were doing and only she could could fix it. And one day it struck him. If she's talking about them behind their back, she's probably talking about me behind my back. So he decided at age, I think he was 42, that he was going to stop that ship, 20-year, 30-year pattern of coming to his shore. He said, Mom, I love you. I want to talk to you. I want to have these these weekly connections or or monthly connections, whatever it was. But I'm no longer going to, to, when we're talking, hear about what you do or do not like about my brother or sister. If I have a problem with them, I will call them directly. I'm going to call them after we're done talking, tell them to call me directly. I want us to talk about what's going on in your life, not what's going on in other people's lives. Well, I just, I'm just trying to be helpful. I know you are, Mom. I appreciate your heart, but I'm no longer going to listen to that. You can imagine that didn't go over real well initially. But he said that decision changed the whole pattern of their family. He called up his brother. He said, I want to let you know, I don't know if Mom does this with you, but I know it's happened with me. I've said some things about you behind your back. I don't want to do that anymore. If I have any issues, I'm going to call you directly. Hope you do the same. What was he doing? He was paying attention. This is a bad habit we have as a family. It's deception. It's manipulation. It's a weird enabling codependent thing. And he decided to stop that ship from coming to the shore, not pay heed to that, and brought incredible freedom into his life and into his family. Went to jet skiing a couple of days ago with a friend of mine, and as I was there, he said, Chad, I heard a message you gave about six months ago about how you're able to overcome bitterness when you've been really wronged by something. How did you do that? So, well, it was hard. I said, but the one thing that I kept doing is I kept seeing bitterness as a ship full of poisonous cargo. And every time bitterness got close to me, I would say, I am not going to let that take root in my heart. And so I decided to do whatever it took to keep entrusting myself to God who judges righteously and to keep that poison from coming into me. I remember writing in my journal one time, you know, I actually had the pen, I held it like this, and I wrote, I will not be bitter. And believe it or not, I could feel myself heading toward that, but I'm like, I've got to be strong about keeping that boat from coming on shore with me. I've got to pay attention to that. You've got to tag it for what it is. It's gossip. It's division. It's insubordination. Second thing, we need to pay attention, but we also need to discern. People accuse other people of the thing they practice. I'll develop that thought in a second. Let me show you where I got it. Verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. If the gospel is true, then we are pure in Christ, and therefore all things are pure, outside and inside. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. You see, the, the Jewish leaders or the, the religious leaders were teaching that you're not pure in the inside. You only get pure through doing external things. And so you couldn't go to these feasts and you couldn't eat this thing. And you couldn't drink that thing. And if you drank this, you were better than other people. If you didn't drink this, you were worse than other people. So Paul said, no, when you're pured on the, purified on the inside, you can eat, drink. That's not, that's not what the religion's about, these externals that the religious leaders are talking about. I'll explain better in a second. But even their mind, those who don't believe, and their conscience are defiled. When your conscience and your mind, your internal is defiled, everything that comes out of you is defiled. And they, the people who are teaching this, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him. 
they're living a duplicitous life. They say God is, is loving and true, but they don't live in a way that's loving and true. They say God is patient and humble, and yet when you look at their life, they're very arrogant and self-righteous. If you want to know what you really believe, look at how you act. And if your actions are not pointing back to the very characters of your God, then something's out of alignment. What they're doing, their works are abominable, wow, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You need to recognize these people for what's coming out of their life. Examine their life. Somebody might say, I really know what God wants. I really know what God needs. I really know what the scripture says here. But you look at their life and you say, I don't see love and joy and peace and gentleness and self-control coming out. So you need to tag that for what it is. I'm not sure I'm going to give a lot of weight to that person's opinion when they're not living the kind of life out that the Spirit's in control of. The reason I call this principle is that people accuse others of what they practice is because when you're pure, all things are pure. When you're unbelieving or defiled, it's amazing how everything becomes defiled. About three years ago, I was talking with a friend who uh, said, my, my, uh, my spouse thinks that I'm, I'm cheating on, it, on them. And it's weird because I've always been faithful. It's never been, never been an issue. And, and all these accusations are coming my way. Things like, you're talking about me behind my back. I can't believe you do that. I can't believe you're lying about me. And I'll say, well, look, here's my phone record. That's not true. Here's, what, what can I do to help with this trust thing that's going on here? And no matter what I did, I kept hearing you're manipulating me. I don't think I'm manipulating you. You're lying to me. I don't think I'm lying to you. How did I do that? You're, you're cheating on me. I don't think I'm doing that. And about three months later, guess what he found out? She was lying and cheating and manipulating him. You see, when you are lying about other people, it's amazing how you think they're lying about you. When you talk about people behind their back, you become very insecure that people are talking about you behind your back. When you are defiled in your conscience, it's amazing the insecurity that brings into you because you assume other people are doing the same thing you're doing. If you're gossiping, people are probably doing it about you. If you're cheating and lying, I'd be pregnant about you. But the freedom of the gospel is when you realize you've been forgiven, past, present, future by God, and you say, God, help me bring out my gack, because to the pure, all things are pure. God, I want to express the purity you've given to me. I want to express the goodness you've given to me. I want the good works that I do to be an expression of the good work you did on the cross. And you're not filled with that kind of fear and insecurity. Because you know you're trying to walk in the light as he is in the light. But part of a leader is recognizing not everyone is doing that. And that we need to discern and we need to pay attention. Leaders need to know how to gag them and how to tag them. And I want to encourage you. I talked a lot about, you know, whether we're leading people, whether we're leading our kids. Now I want to talk about, in our conclusion how we might ask God to do that to us. Think about our four statements that we brought up from this passage. Stop, rebuke, pay attention, and discern. I want you to pick one. Many of us say, oh, I just love it when God embraces me and loves me and comforts me. Of course. But maybe you've never asked God to rebuke you, to stop some things, to address some things. Like, oh, no, no, just give me a hug, God. And maybe today say, no, God, I want to grow and I want to be equipped. So, God, I want to invite you into my life. I want to invite you to parent me to, to stop some things. Some things I'm maybe even blind to that I'm doing that are affecting my marriage or my kids or my company. Some things that have been brought up to me enough times that I filter it out. 
God, I invite your Holy Spirit to parent me to set some boundaries in my life. Father, I ask you to rebuke me because I'm going to trust no matter how harsh your rebuke is that I know that you died for me on the cross so it's always going to be motivated that you want me to be sound in my faith. You're motivated to make me healthy. And God, I want to live with wisdom. Maybe I've been too harsh on people and I haven't given the hope that you can purify all things so God, give me more grace or mercy. Or maybe on the other side, you've been incredibly naive and you've been stepped on and kicked and kicked and kicked and God's saying, wake up, it's time to pay attention. Don't, don't, allow evil people into your life to damage you that way. It's time for you to pay attention and discern, be a little more discerning in who it is you're interacting with. So pick one word and we'll close in prayer. God, stop. God, rebuke. God, teach me to pay attention. Or God, instruct me in how to discern. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how practical it is. Thank you for this leadership journal you gave us in Titus and the challenge and the the freedom it gives us in pursuing you. Father, we don't just want principles from the scripture. We want to live out a relationship. And we know when we get close to you, your wisdom spills over into our life. Your strong, loving parenting spills over into our life. Your strong leadership and rebuking spills into our life. Give us the courage to face whatever poisonous ships might be near the cargo of our family or our company or or even our own hearts. Father, that you would bring us freedom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for being here today. If you came prepared to give, there's some offering boxes on your way out. If you're new at the church, we'd love to put a name with a face. Third door on your left is the hearth room. We'd love to say hi. Thanks again.